Built Unstoppable is a weekly podcast that features a new guest each week who shares their experiences, learnings, and helpful tips for achieving your greatest potential. Welcome to episode number 13 of the Built Unstoppable podcast. I'm your host, Justin Levy, and today I'm joined by Teresa Payton. Teresa was the first female CIO for the White House during the the President George W. Bush administration and is currently the CEO and founder of Fortalist Solutions, which is a boutique cybersecurity and intelligence services company. They're currently listed in the global cybersecurity top 500 and the hottest 150 global companies in cybersecurity by Cybercrime Magazine. She's also a frequent guest on national and international news outlets. Thanks for joining today, Teresa. Oh, Justin, I'm so excited to join you today. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you. Now, I think the first question that anyone would be interested in is during your role at the White House, what did your day-to-day duties entail? Well, you know, it is really, um, every day was kind of its own unique day, uh, encapsulated in days and weeks and months, but, and years, but, uh, you know, sort of a typical day. I, I got to the point where I decided I always wanted to have a very planful and prayerful start to my day. So I'd get up around 3.15 in the morning and I would grab my gym bag and my clothes, for the day and my computer and my Blackberry. And I would leave my flat and uh, drive into the White House gym, which is actually run by the Secret Service. So it's um, 24 hours and would get my workout in, uh, which, and then basically be showered, dressed uh, back at my office uh, by about 6.15, which is typically when President George W. Bush would be um, doing his first briefing of the day. Uh, I would um, talk to my husband and, and kids who were in Charlotte, North Carolina, before they went off to work in school, uh, say my prayers. And then right around the time that I would finish sort of the saying of the prayers and saying hello to my family before the day started, that's when the basically the first couple of meetings would have ended and some of the taskers for the day would come out. Um, so I learned that it was really good to sort of get a jump start on the day and, and have myself personally grounded, you know, sort of mentally, physically, spiritually, so that I could, you know, be the best that I could be. The days were long. Um, some days, uh, you know, on if nothing pressing or urgent was going on, I would typically work until about nine o'clock at night. Uh, but oftentimes it would be, you know, 10 o'clock, maybe a little bit later before I would actually um, head back, uh, you know, kind of sleep, uh, a really good deep sleep for a short period of time and then sort of uh, start the next day again. But uh, really an incredible honor. And you work with so many dedicated and smart people. The days go by incredibly fast and, and there's always so much to do. You know, you kind of have to create those boundaries of like, okay, this is good enough for today. I'll be back at it tomorrow. I always read and anything I ever saw on TV always said that President Bush uh, is an early bird and his meetings start on time and early. Yes, actually, it's funny you say that because 
uh, some meetings that I would have, uh, which revolved around making sure he was getting what he needed. So my meeting might not have been with him specifically, but I was briefing somebody who had to brief him or it was going to be part of a larger meeting. Some meetings were actually only 15 minutes long and they started on the minute and they ended on the minute they were supposed to start and end on. And so, yes, it was run very much almost like a business operation. And so you knew if something was not on schedule, you knew something was going wrong or something challenging or some type of an incident must have come up because there was there was a battle rhythm uh, to the day that that actually was built in such a way it handled incidents. So you knew something had to really, really be going wrong uh, if you were off schedule. Now, I, what you were saying about, you know, starting your day early and to get your workout in and things of that nature, um, that was something that has been talked about by a lot of people, um, you know, especially within politics, you know, President Obama has has talked about how early he need to start his day with his workout and kind of get that underway. And with my work in, you know, large Fortune 500 companies, that's how I start my day as well. Uh, things are a little different now, obviously, but um, with the pandemic, because I'm not going to a physical gym and not leave my house. But when I would have to drive the hour to hour and 15 minutes to my office, I woke up at 3.30 or so every day, fed my cats and took my dog for her walk and picked up my gym stuff and was at the gym by 4.15. And it set the mood for the day. And I would find that if something came up in my life, you know, a bad night of sleep and I couldn't go to the gym the next morning, the entire day was off. Things just didn't feel right. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great point. And, and I think that's, you know, when people say, you know, how, how do you, you know, handle things? So for example, even things like COVID-19, you can't, dig deep within yourself if you didn't invest in your health and well-being. And Justin, you all people, you know, based on your life story and what you've been through, you absolutely know what I'm talking about here. And so, you know, to me, the, the, the reason it's interesting, when I first started working, I used to work out in the evening after work. Now I was married. I didn't have kids yet. I didn't have the level of responsibility in the workplace, right? I was, you know, just kind of making my way up the ladder, so to speak. And, but what I learned over time was, cause that was a great stress reliever at the end of the day for me. And I would think, how do, why do people work out so early in the morning? And then as I started having more responsibility, both personally and professionally, I realized you know, your day can get off to, you know, a, a challenging start and get in the way of what's really important, which is making sure that holistically, you know, that you're well grounded and well balanced in what you eat and your exercise and sort of kind of your mental well-being. Um, so I flipped it around, was like, look, I'm just going to have to get up because I used to get up super early and go straight to work and then finish the day and go work out. And then I learned you know, I'm better off getting still getting up super early, but getting the workout in 
early. And, you know, if there's time at the end of the day for, a, a, you know, a little longer of a walk with the dogs or to enjoy things outside, great. But, you know, don't let anything get in the way of wellness. Because, you know, what I've learned, Justin, because, I've you know, I've got three kids. I've got two rescue Great Pyrenees. I've got a husband and a company. I've got friends, family. And, you know, I have to make sure that I'm incredibly disciplined to nourish and feed myself so that I can take care of others. It's like flying on an airplane. What's the first thing they say to you during the safety demonstration about the oxygen masks? They say, put your oxygen mask on first and then help others. So if you're too busy helping everybody else and your mask isn't on first and you pass out, you're of no use to anyone around you, including yourself. It's interesting what you say about kind of the morning versus the night. When we first moved out to California, where we live now, you know, I'm from uh, New England. And so when we first moved out here, I just started to go to the gym at four o'clock in the morning. At that point, I only lived about 15, 20 minutes from the gym. And it was, it was actually not a change on my body clock. 4 a.m. was 7 a.m where I used to live. And then when we moved to where we are now, that travel time increased. I was working from home at previously, and then I had to be in my office as, you know, I got promoted and moved up in my career. And at, at that point, I had to flip that and it was, you know, okay, we're leaving the house at, you know, 5.45, 6 a.m. or so. So I stuck my workout at the end of the day and I found that I was much more likely to skip it because we weren't getting home from our office until seven, eight o'clock at night. And to then drop my wife off, turn around, go work out, come back, try to kind of slam a dinner down, watch a couple minutes of TV and go do it all over again really wasn't healthy because all beyond not getting a great workout and now your diet's thrown off in, in your family life wasn't consistent. So I had to flip the dial. And when the second I did that, everything else was put in, put back into place. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, you have a, a career in finance and you've been at a, you know, senior level roles at a couple of large institutions so what drove you from your career in finance into a career in cybersecurity and intelligence? Yeah, so I always say I'm very blessed that my career chose me <laughs> uh, because when I first came out of uh, graduate school at University of Virginia, I went to undergraduate at Immaculata University. But when I first came out of graduate school at University of Virginia, if you had asked me then, okay, Teresa, what's the career path and what are the goals? I would have said, I'm going to change the world through expert systems and artificial intelligence. And then I'm going to go to law school and I'm going to run for U.S. Senate. Like that was kind of the, the path. Um, I haven't gone to law school and I haven't run for the U.S. Senate. And I'm not currently doing AI in expert system development. But what's interesting is, is I had the opportunity to work in the financial services industry 
uh, again, that was sort of a job that chose me. My husband uh, was stationed at Mayport, Florida in the U.S. Navy. And uh, I finished up graduate school and started interviewing for jobs. And this wonderful company, Barnett Bank, now part of Bank of America, uh, was very innovative and creative and took a chance on me. And I had the opportunity to deliver these emerging innovative technologies for our customers while at the same time being responsible for managing fraud, risk, and security. We didn't even call it cybersecurity yet. And, and so having to think about the human using the technology and having to think about the criminals trying to get in between the bank and the human trying to use the technology, um, it's really interesting, but it just started to really shape my view of sort of my role that I could play. And then having that opportunity to be the chief information officer at the White House and having responsibility for the transformation uh, and innovation efforts, but also for security, I realized that um, we had a disconnect. I realized that cybersecurity and cybercrime uh, was going to you know, kind of be unfortunately an ever-present danger uh, for nations, businesses, and individuals because we weren't designing technology and processes and security around the human. I mean, think about it, Justin. Um, you probably at least once today had to type in a strong password that had upper and lowercase letters and special characters and numbers, and it was possibly really hard to remember. Does that feel like they designed that element of security around you? Probably not. I don't know about you, Justin, but um, someone uh, you know has never come and run me down and said, did you have anything to do with strong passwords? Because I just want to thank you because the stronger and the longer, the better. Right. And so that's an example where we don't design with the human in mind. And so I I really feel like this career and this profession chose me. And it's really an incredible honor to be able to protect uh, individuals and businesses and nations from cyber criminals. Sure. And, and it really is, it's important. And it's something that a lot of people only see some of the true frontline things, like you said, uh, a password or multi-factor authentication or, um, things of that nature, but they a lot of times don't consider or think about the true underlying things that are happening uh, in our nation or globally. And I think that that's what, you know, your current book uh, touched on and it's called Manipulated Inside the Cyber War to Hijack Elections and Distort the Truth. And you know, I, I personally think it's something that everyone should read. I found it really uh, compelling. But one area that I, I found particularly interesting was how frequent, frequently attacks and hacks are used to generate fake controversies. Because I think what we hear so much on TV about is, say, a hack, right? You know, media will pick it up as, this hack or this fake news or whatever the the kind of piece that they're running with. But could you provide an example 
of, and you do this several times throughout the book, but could you provide an example of where it actually wasn't directed just one side at the other, but actually there was this true fake controversy that pitted A against B? Sure. Gosh, there's, um, well, let me give one example um, based on, you know, kind of what you said, which was, you know, kind of the making, making up a controversy. And this goes back to actually French elections. So I want people, you know, Justin, to take away, uh, you know, people get very focused on, you know, did Russia meddle um, in the U.S. elections in 2016? And, are they still meddling? And the answer is, of course they are. And they don't just meddle in US elections. And for them, it's not just picking about winners and losers. It's, it's actually about destabilizing democracy at its most fundamental elements, which are, you know, you think about America and you think about, you know, there's a lot of things we haven't done correctly over the years, but the beautiful thing about America is, we can actually speak out against government and political officials and elect them out and elect new ones in. And we can have an open debate and dialogue and still shake hands. And after COVID, go have a beer together if we want to, or a cup of tea together if we want to. And that's what's amazing about democracy. And not every country has the blessing of democracy where they can speak freely and where they can vote people in and out, you know, based on um, you know, kind of the leadership that you feel you need at the time. And so if you look at the French elections, and if you look at the months and weeks leading up to uh, Macron uh, in that particular election, uh, he was running up against Marie Le Pen, and there was a hacking of his campaign. And in the weeks before um, people were going to go vote, the information that had been stolen from his campaign started to leak on the internet. And one of the common tactics that Russians will use is when they do, it's called a dump and docks campaign. So you, you know, you hack in, you steal stuff and then you dump it. Um, so it's called a dump and docks campaign. But a tactic that Russia will use is they'll they'll actually leak real things and then they'll make up forgeries and leak forgeries in with the truth. So you don't know what's true and what's false and you just assume it's all true. And that's a typical Russian uh, espionage spy tactic. And so they start dumping this stuff on the internet, including deep fake forgeries showing financial statements of offshore accounts with lots of money in them owned by Macron. Now the French actually have a media blackout law. And so in the weeks uh, that when the Russians were trying to do this and dumping us on the internet, the French media following their law would not cover it. And what's fascinating is, is after the election was over, these deep fake forgeries were finally examined. Everybody said it was a fraud and a fake. Macron had done nothing wrong. But could you imagine, Justin, what if they hadn't had a media blackout on that topic and people voted against Macron for Marie Le Pen 
And then later you find out what made people vote wasn't actually accurate. Oh my goodness. And so that's an example where they created a controversy. And I'll tell you, Justin, so all of that was disproven, right? That it was made up and it wasn't true. And I've had Americans say to me, well, I don't know how I feel about Macron. You can't really trust him. And I'll say, why? And they're like, you know, we never got to the bottom of those offshore accounts. Because guess what? That did run here in America. And I'll say, yes, we did. It, those were all forgeries. The Russians made that up. That's not true. And they're like, well, you don't know that it's not true because nobody proved that it wasn't true. So this is what we're dealing with, Justin. And the Russians aren't the only ones who do it. I think that's a great example. And when I was reading your book, another thing that caught my eye, and I, I guess it just wasn't something I had truly sat back and thought about, was that a lot of times it's not a single hack, right? In, in the term that you would think of it as. Now, I've experienced DDoS attacks where that's literally the only thing that happens. You know, I've run um, global social media and, you know, been a victim of DDoS attacks on our systems that I was part of and, and whatnot. But you talk about that a lot of times by these nation states or by other individuals, it's not a hack. It's actually a multifaceted series of attacks using different technologies or things that they can, you know, that's uh, tools in their tool chest that they can deploy, focus attention in, you know, this way while they get in or do what they got to do through another way. Can you delve a bit deeper into that and kind of explain that? So do you remember which case you're talking about, Justin? I think that there was one it was midway-ish through the book where you were talking about, and I think it was one of the stories that you, you know, you had mentioned, and you're talking about when the Russians were uh, setting up one of their attacks um, in for America, and I think it was everything to do with the 2016 elections, but mm -hmm. that it was it was going to be the the Democratic emails was going, they're going to go after that. And then they're going to dump documents yes. here and then they're going to go. So it was, it was multifaceted. It wasn't just a DDoS attack to take down the server. It was, they were going to make several intrusions um, through mm. different ways. Yeah. So that's the other thing that's interesting about um, Russia is, so they, they will operate in independent cells and you know for the record putin denies um i mean categorically denies that anybody's hacking and trying to influence through political espionage american elections or any other ones so you know you can decide how you feel about that but one of the things that does create plausible deniability for him is he has these different cells of cyber operatives and they just kind of have an overarching mission and then they work so independently of, you know, kind of the upper echelons of the Russian regime. They work so independently that they don't even know what the other cyber operative cell is doing. 
So in many cases, they're actually tripping over each other, going after the same stuff, just a little bit of a different way. Uh, but you're right, Justin. They What's interesting is they targeted uh, voter registration databases across different states. They targeted the websites of the Board of Elections in other states. They targeted uh, social media platforms, creating fake personas, posing as like, you know, your fellow American, uh, creating fake grassroots organizations and even fake news organizations, uh, promoting all different types of old news, wrapping it up as, a, as if it were new uh, and misinformation. And uh, they did go after um, both campaigns. So there's uh, the FBI has documented that there were intrusions and attempted intrusions at both campaigns. Uh, what the FBI has shared in an unclassified manner was that uh, the RNC websites and some other accounts they went after uh, appear to have been not in use at the time that the Russians, you know, got access to them. So in other words, you know, it's kind of like a shell of something that's that they decided wasn't super useful. Um, if they did get RNC uh, information from operatives, they didn't share it publicly like they did uh, the information that they got from DNC political operatives and uh, the political campaign um, of Hillary Clinton. So it's just it's it's fascinating. It's it's as if they have, you know, sort of here's our political espionage cyber spy playbook. And they basically like went chapter by chapter, by chapter, from beginning to end, and did just about every tactic you can imagine, including spinning up cloud instances, uh, mining cryptocurrency on victims' uh, computers, and using the cryptocurrency to pay for a lot of the things they were doing to cover their tracks. I mean, it's it's really fascinating. And if, if anyone uh, has not read the unclassified version of the Mueller report, it reads almost like the inner workings of a spy novel. I think something else, I mean, you had mentioned when you're talking about how this career found you and you're talking about you know, individuals, businesses, and nation states. There are aspects of this, I would assume, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but that are with the businesses that you work with, right? The, I mean, I've when I was at some of my companies formerly, they, you know, the CISO and, and their organizations were large and very stringent systems and that they had in place and they read, they ran tests and war gamed it. And the individuals that were on this team were not just some, some people that applied to the company. These were recruited individuals from, say, the Joint Chiefs of Staff individuals and former FBI and those level of folks um, because they had expertise in these areas. So when you work with the companies and even, like you said, down to the individuals that you work with, how do you take that level of expertise that's at 
you know, that you look through the lens with the nation states like Russia or, or anyone else that's, you know, been shared out there and apply it to the business. Because I have to assume some of those technologies and applies to these companies, especially these Fortune 500s and, you know, even definitely down to Fortune 10s. No, I, I love um, kind of your perspective there. And, and I agree. And the, the way we kind of translate that is, you know, again, sort of this human centered design. So the, the tactics that, you know, Russia, North Korea, uh, China, in some cases, and Iran uh, may use against political campaigns are very similar to what can be used against individuals and against organizations. Uh, so for example, the tactic of doing digital surveillance of a political campaign, you could do very similarly against uh, you know, an American company. Uh, we know, uh, so I'm not picking on anybody in particular country-wise, but we know because it was reported to us that American companies who are in uh, the race for a vaccine for COVID-19 uh, have reported and the FBI has reported uh, cyber intrusions that have been conducted against these vaccine companies by both Russia and China operatives. Now, again, for the record, both countries deny uh, the hacking, uh, but uh, I'll kind of go with what the FBI says. Uh, if they start attributing, um, I'm going to go with what they say. And uh, in these cases, they said that cyber operatives from Russia and China were uh, attempted hackings and successful hackings of vaccine companies and companies in the vaccine supply chain. Well, the tactics they use to target the companies is not much different than the tactics they use against a political campaign. You go after the, you know, if it's a voter registration database or a vaccine a supply chain database. You go after um, a state board of elections website, they went after the vaccines and their third party suppliers websites, uh, distributed denial of service attacks, uh, trying to uh, use somebody's user ID and password to get access to information. All of those tactics are tactics that you can deploy across the spectrum. So you can go after a political campaign, an individual, um, a U.S. government or a national government or a company with those same tactics and techniques. Yeah, and something that I've also been a part of, and I know it's one of the kind of solutions or products that you, you sell, quote unquote, you know, you'll work with your clients on is, uh, is insider intrusions going through those exercises and when i've been at <clears throat> excuse me at former companies of mine they ran these tests and we're all anyone that's been online for any amount of time has received when we had aol for example <clears throat> we received those types of emails to please send money 20 million dollars to for my 10 wives but i think we we've matured a little bit since then so when I've been at my companies, um, what they would do is send an internal email that looked perfectly real, 
And it was mm-hmm. from someone within the company, someone, some team, something like that. But it was actually coming from the security team and they would run these internal tests to see what percentage of the company fell for the attempt. And then they would, obviously it was part of a campaign for them to help explain what could have happened if this was a true intrusion. And it was always interesting, you know, the, you know, I always saw it between 80 to 95% people successfully reported the fish, but it was an example of something serious that could have happened if that did come from an external source. No, and Justin, that is um, a really good best practice, you know, kind of that it's, it, I, I like it because it's a little bit of a show and tell. It's a, okay, it's, I've, it, it's like tell and then show and tell. So it's, I told you, be careful. Cyber criminals can be really uh, clever and catch you on a busy day and convince you to do something that could put the company at risk. And everybody says, well, I know this training is for everybody else around me and not me, because it wouldn't be me, right? Everybody would like to think, including me, uh, who used to work at the White House, everybody would like to think we're not the one who's gonna let the bad guys in. And so that testing is so important because you tell, then you show, and then you tell again. And, and, And if it's done in such a way where again, we're focused on the human and saying to the human, hey, look, I get it. The job I gave you, I expect you to open up email. You have to click on links and open attachments. And then I give you training that says, don't open links. Don't you know open attachments and click on links. And you say, I'm sorry, how am I supposed to do my job and remember these security tips? So again, I go back to kind of the beginning, Justin, where we were talking about human-centered design. So if you can have that right training, which really understands how tough everyone's job is, and they're not gonna be a security expert. That's not what you hired them to be. You hired them to be the expert at what they're expert at. And then find a way to sort of just gently remind them and then put that safety net around them, either through firewalls or processes. Hey, you know, think about this. If you created a system where when they clicked on the link or open an attachment, it did a quick scan or it opened up on a virtual machine instead of their own desktop, there's different things that you can do that create that safety net around them and doesn't hold them accountable for being both the expert at what they do and some type of digital bouncer trying to be the last line of defense for your company. So I love the fact that you brought up that best practice because that is really Um, an incredible and really helpful um, practice to do. From what I've seen, and I experience it when I email with people, you know, inside other companies, is even something as simple as, you know, a lot of companies are deploying that kind of external tag at the top so that when that recipient gets that email that's from outside the company, it's being called out to the individual within the company. Hey, listen. This is external, just FYI. So even something like you said around this kind of human-centered design, that's something very simple. It's not hard for now when I look at my email or the preview, I see that it's external. And that sends a little flag to me, essentially, if I don't know who's emailing me. Well, especially if it's coming from Teresa Payton, you never know. 
what might be in that email. <laughs> <laughs> now, throughout your career, you've held obviously senior uh, leadership positions as you're coming up uh, through finance. And then, of course, when you're at the White House, now, based on your experiences, what advice would you give to someone that's listening to this episode that they could implement in their career, say, immediately after listening? So a couple of things, I think, um, you know, the first one is, is to really understand what motivates you and align your personal and your work goals to that motivation. Uh, because if you if you say, well, money motivates me. Um, last time I checked, nobody tapes their paycheck to their forehead and looks at it and when they look in the mirror every day. Uh, and so may, maybe it does to a certain elemental level, but that's actually not going to be what like nourishes your heart and your soul and your mind. Um, so really understand sort of the facets of what motivates you. I often say have a personal 36 month plan and schedule time with yourself or somebody you trust um, on the calendar once a month to hold yourself accountable, just like you would hold yourself accountable to a project um, at work that's got a deadline. Give yourself deadlines, give yourself goals. Don't beat yourself up if you don't hit those. And then have some spaces where you know, you can be fearless and, um, you know, just know that that safety net's there. I mean, think about all of the training, you know, I, I, I always marvel at like trapeze acts or even like what Alison Levine, who's been on your podcast, you know, has been able to accomplish. And, you know, before she climbs the mountain, she has a plan she's trained, she's thought about it, but she knows when she gets to the mountain, you know, the mountain is not a static thing. You know, it's always ever changing and dynamic. So the plan is a guideline, but the plan could also kill you if you can't learn to be flexible within the plan. And so I always say kind of have that 36 month plan, but once a month sit down and talk about what did I accomplish? What did I not accomplish and why? And why is that okay? And then what do I want to accomplish in the next 30 days? But know where you're going, you know, and, um, you know, know what your kind of, you know, that path needs to be. Uh, you know, the other thing is, you know, as far as kind of like being courageous and fearless, you know, really kind of understand how you need to hold yourself accountable, but also know what your, your limits are, not because you're fearful, not because you're not willing to take risks, but because you have to take time to nourish and re-energize and recharge and, you know, really evaluate things. So also understand kind of what your re renewing and refueling and re-energizing plan is. I know, um, Carrie Lowrance, who's been on here as well, also another woman I'm friends with and admire, you know, she would tell you she had to refuel, right? You can't just, you can't run a jet on jet fumes, you know, beyond cer a certain capacity. And so understand, you know, where are those moments that you need to understand you have fatigue or before hitting that fatigue, how to renew and recharge. So those would be my 
my biggest piece of advice and, and just learn how to, you know, work hard, but also sort of marvel at what you're accomplishing and enjoy it. Take the time to enjoy it and find those moments to celebrate even a milestone as something of success. Those are really important tips. I think, you know, those are things that we've tried to implement in our life, you know, whether they are, we have certain things that we do for accomplishments, whether that's age accomplishments or career or personal accomplishments, you know, we have something that we do uh, for a celebration and it's always hold true. We don't, you know, waver from that. My wife and I carve out a time every year and it's, it doesn't move with the exception of this year because it doesn't help uh, when the borders are closed and you can't fly, but we have a set vacation and it's hard. It's set in stone every year for the two of us get away and no phones, email, you know, any of that sort of stuff. Um, and we have a few other things like that and it, we check in on it, but, uh, we keep that in mind. And you know, I think the danger, like you said, is especially where we live right now in Silicon Valley is people come out here, work hundred hour weeks, burn out and can, you know, they look back and have nothing really to show for it. They might've, you know, lost their family. If they, if they were married, they may have a fancy house and a fancy car, but be over leveraged, you know, whatever the case is, it was the things and not the relationships or the memories. You know, my father-in-law is, is real big on that. And, you know, he always talks about how everything that he does for us, him and my mother-in-law does do for us and for the entire family is to build memories. That's what he cares about. He always has cared about, but that's what he cares about in his life now. And he wants us to be able to have are the memories of places that we get to travel to or holidays together or favorite traditions. And uh, because that won't change no matter what you make from money money is great and advancements in your career are great and, and they should happen and have that motivation to take the next step in your career um, and all the great things that come with it should happen. But I totally agree on the, on the personal side, it has to be 360 degrees. It can't just be focused in one area. And for a lot of people that typically is working more and burning yourself out. So the second, the last question, and it's uh, the one I ask everyone is what does being built unstoppable mean to you? Yeah, I, you have to be relentless and vigilant and determined. And, and that's where really aligning what you believe your life's calling and your life's purpose is uh, really making sure you're aligned to that and what you do for work uh, and what you do outside of work is so vitally important because that's what makes you unstoppable. And, and just like, you know, any 
individual athlete or team athlete will tell you, it's also the team around you. So it has to be who you work with and then who supports you in your personal life, whether it's your immediate family, your friends, uh, relatives. Uh, you can't be unstoppable if you don't have a great pit crew around you, making sure that you can get back out there. That was really important to me when you know, I was recovering from my injuries was I was extremely fortunate to have had my mother-in-law fly out immediately. I didn't even realize she had, but she got the first ticket out of Connecticut when my wife called her at two o'clock in the morning, East coast time. And she took a one-way flight and, you know, didn't know when she would fly back. And then immediately that next morning, as a couple friends of mine heard what was going on, they set up GoFundMe accounts and thousands of people that, you know, I didn't even realize my network was that big or, and, you know, they told other people and, you know, I was fortunate to have a lot of people around me, both immediate, you know, kind of one degree separated um, or multiple degrees separated. And my family disagrees with me, but I tell them that all I did was the physical recovery. You know, I didn't do anything else besides that. I went to physical therapy and I worked on getting my strength back. They did everything else. I mean, for nine or 10 weeks, my wife and my mother-in-law had to feed me, get me water, anything that I needed. So that was a, you know, a much larger stress on them. And so I think it goes right to what you're saying, right? You, you have to have those people around you that uh, you trust and to go through anything, not even something as serious as a as a big injury. And finally, where can people find you on the web? Sure. No, I'm, I'm glad you asked, Justin. Uh, so there's, uh, depends on, I, again, human-centered design, I try to be where um, people are. Uh, so as far as like the the company um, accounts, you we have fortalessolutions.com. And we have company accounts on LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Uh, I personally, if people want to follow me on Twitter, you can find me at Tracker Payton is my Twitter handle. I'm also personally on LinkedIn, Snapchat. Um, you can find me on Facebook as well. Uh, and yeah, those are the, those are the main places that, uh, that you can find me as a person. I will, um, let people know I don't tweet or kind of, um, muse about politics. I'm more of a policy person than a political person. Uh, but, uh, if you do follow me personally, you will not only get privacy and security tips, but you will also get pictures of my two great Pyrenees. Uh, King Seamus and Princess Leia, maybe an occasional sighting of my kids uh, and some of our, um, my youngest, uh, I refer to her as Little Chef and Lady Maeve. Um, and we actually uh, make goodies for friends and family 
um, to cheer them up during this time of COVID. Um, so you may see the occasional cake or pie um, on my social media posts. So if you think you're just getting security and privacy, I'm following me personally, um, you're going to get more than you bargained for. Um, but the company accounts stick to uh, privacy and security topics. That's fantastic. And I obviously I hope people go and follow follow you and connect with you. You do share a lot and it, it's fan, great topics that you share, but the mixture of personal and professional is amazing. It's something that I always endorse and encourage, right? It, again, human centered design it, it, you should be blending work in a home because you're not two different people. Right? You, you are one and that's family. Like you said, baked goods right now. Um, dogs, which I share a lot of, you know, photos of my animals and, uh, but then professional. So it's, it's good to share that way. Well, thank you so much for joining. I know you have a extremely busy day. Um, and hopefully, you know, people will learn a lot from this episode. Well, thanks for having me on, Justin, and keep up the great work that you're doing. And it's been just a pleasure to be with you. You're an awesome host. Thank you. Thank you for joining another episode of Built Unstoppable. Please head over to BuiltUnstoppable.com, where you can read new articles from Justin Levy. 